Hi, welcome to the Romance Me podcast. This is Erica. And I'm Em. We'd like to say a special hello to our number one and only fan. You know who you are. And you can meet me at the Copacabana for drinks and deaths. <laughs> Today, we're discussing Kristen Ashley's Fantasyland series. Or, as I like to call it, a series of dark romances in kick-ass clothing. <laughs> In this series, there are two parallel worlds, our world and Fantasyland. Almost everyone in our world has a twin in Fantasyland, although while these twins look exactly alike, they are often very different from each other. There are five books in this series, and each book involves a character from our world being transported to Fantasyland and finding, quote, love across worlds. Content warning. These books contain dubious consent, rape, sexual violence, abuse, including emotional, domestic, and violent child abuse, abuse survivorship, child loss, and slavery. There are also several scenes where the hero is violent toward the heroine, including rape. And there will be spoilers beyond this point. Well, Queen of Context, explain to me these twin parallel worlds. Is one of them evil? Yes. (laughs) Is it our world or the other one? I'm sure if you've been listening along with us, you will know that Fantasyland is what I like to affectionately call toxic masculinity land. (laughs) Joking aside, so the two worlds, we have our world, which is present day Earth, I'm assuming, and then Fantasyland, which is a medieval-esque fantasy world where magic is real um there's kings and princesses and all that kind of stuff so we're first introduced to fantasy land by finney who is from our world and she chooses to come to fantasy land yes she wants to be reunited with some version of her parents who passed away when she was 16 at the start of the story she's in her 30s and I think she's the only one who, who actually chooses to go into Fantasyland and knows what's going on. All the other heroines from our world just kind of get blink transported and don't know what is happening. Yeah, no. <laughs> no consent. <laughs> <laughs> so did you feel that this world was believable? I think it's the type of world where I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. But it's it's also the type of world where you're thinking to yourself, hmm, maybe I wouldn't go there. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think the author does a good job of of creating separate cultures throughout the world. There's multiple countries and you get a good sense of place, I think, especially like how the people dress and the languages that they speak and that kind of thing. So, for example, you have the first book, which takes place in Lunwen, which is the Northlands. And then you have the second book, which takes place in Korwak, which is in the south. And not only is Lunwen cold and icy and they speak English, Korwak is hot and they speak, what, Korwakian, I guess? I, I believe so. Yeah, Valerian is English and then Floridian or something like that. That's French. I think those are the only three languages that were introduced to. I think so. You get a sense of distance, though, because, I mean, the the fact that the climate is so different, the languages are completely different, 
the cultures are completely different because in Lunwen you get like, I don't know, kind of like a stereotypical medieval-esque culture it feels like but then in Korwak you get a much more barbaric type of culture which is really reminiscent of Game of Thrones like the Dothraki and they're nomads as well what do you think I know you've had some comments over the course of the over the last few episodes about all the clothes what do you think about the world in general was it well developed I think the characters specifically the heroines their interest seems to be very narrow their focus tends to be pretty narrow. I would agree with that. In the areas that they focused on, there was so much detail, but it didn't really go anywhere, which made it a little bit unsatisfying for me as a reader. It's like gratuitous detail. Yeah, frankly. It, it's fine to say like what the character is wearing, but unless it plays a role in the plot or the conflict, I don't feel like we need to spend that much time on it. You know, like it's fine to say like, oh, her underwear had lace on it. But unless the lace is part of a trade dispute, I don't understand why it's being referenced to the degree that it gets referenced (laughs) in every single book. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, the underwear is wonderful. Okay, that's great. Is there something else interesting that's happening? I think there is a bit of a fantasy element to the clothes in general, like a wish fulfillment. Like you can wear like these extravagant, extremely beautiful, fancy clothes, but they're also supremely comfortable. Yeah. Which is just not a real thing. No. (laughs) Like I think there's one point, one or more characters get, I think, silk underwear. And I'm just thinking that has no give at all. How can that be the most comfortable underwear you've ever worn? (laughs) But it's a fantasy. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it's kind of like a wish fulfillment fantasy. Like, you can dress like a princess and be comfortable. Yeah, I think that's one of the more unbelievable aspects of the story, frankly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, yeah, you're right. I think it is unrealistic because I think if, if you were, like, if we were transported to medieval Europe... <laughs> We'd be complaining about lice and itchy wool, you know, all these things. I don't even know if they wore, like, panties like we wear now. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we know they don't have indoor plumbing because they talk about chamber pots. From what I understand, stuff like that got tossed out windows. So. (laughs) Yeah, and the world is very, quote, clean. So I wonder what happens to things like that. Lots of rain. That's never really mentioned. So it must happen in the night when everybody's sleeping. (laughs) That's why it's a fantasy land. (laughs) What about the characters? I mean, you touched a little bit on the on the women and how they have like a narrow focus. Do you think all the characters are that way? Yeah, they had pretty limited interests. I felt. (laughs) You know, it was all, it's all, oh my gosh, the food is so delicious. Oh my gosh, the clothes are so great. Oh my gosh, he's so hot. Oh, look at the architecture. Isn't it pretty? Oh, yay, he has a castle. Shopping. Yes. Oh, I can go shopping and he'll pay for it. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, he'll pay for it because you can't have a job and go do anything for yourself. But I digress. (laughs) It's very wish fulfillment. I think in that sort of way, like you can wear beautiful clothes and be comfortable. You don't have to work for a living, but you can buy whatever you want. There's all this focus on good food, but no focus on, you know, caloric intake or anything like that. Nope. The calories don't exist. They have been removed. (laughs) (laughs) 
So did you feel like these characters, like these traits all added up to realistic characters for you? Were they relatable? I struggled to relate to most of the heroines primarily because they're in their 30s, but act like they're in their like early 20s at oldest. Yeah, that's being generous in some cases. At least the way I perceive it. You know, very, they, they have very childlike mentalities in some cases. I just really struggle to relate to that because I've always been a very serious person, even when I was a teen and in my early 20s, you know, the, the clapping and the exclaiming over, oh, that's so kick-ass. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, that feeling of wonderment and, and buoyancy, I guess. <laughs> I struggled with that a lot. Like, for example, let's let's talk about Cersei a little bit, because Cersei, I think, is the most physically abused in the whole series. Yeah, at least that we see, because Maddie is quite abused as well, but it's all, quote unquote, off camera. You're right. But Cersei is horribly physically abused. Um, She's raped. She's trapped. Yeah. But at the same time, oh, my clothes are amazing. Oh, this crown is amazing. Oh, my makeup's amazing oh, all my stuff is so beautiful and my tent is so big. And it's hard to relate to her because I try to picture, like if I'm picturing myself in that situation, you know, I'm trapped in a barbarian culture. No one speaks my language. The man who captured me has been raping me twice a day. I try to put myself, like I'm putting myself in that mindset at least a little bit. Well, yeah, because you're trying to attach to the character and invest in the story. Yeah, I just don't think I'd be worried about my clothes. No. I don't think I'd be thinking about my makeup or any of those things. I think I'd be either one, looking for a way out, two, looking for a way to communicate. Yeah, you would. Seeing if there's some way I can manipulate my captor. Yeah, you would be actively trying to improve your situation, which would be crappy. And it seems like Cersei really doesn't. And so for me, I struggle to relate to to characters who are in that situation who at least don't initially have some sort of reaction like that. You know, another big point with Cersei is she finds out she has slaves and she doesn't want slaves and she finds slaves like slavery distasteful, which, okay, let's let's be honest here. Slavery is morally wrong. Yeah, it's reprehensible. <laughs> not Not just distasteful, but I feel like Cersei finds it distasteful. Throughout the book, she just kind of, treats them like they're her friends sort of and doesn't even really acknowledge that they're slaves no she doesn't they're her girls they're her squad yeah it's uh, that's where for lack of a better way to put it but childlike qualities of Cersei particularly come through because it's just it's a lack of critical thinking it's and it's a lack of awareness about another character's life or anything it's she's very in her own little bubble you know when she goes to to visit sabine it's like oh her stuff's not as nice as mine is well you're the queen so that (laughs) might have something to do with it dear possibly you know it's again that critical thinking where it's like she doesn't think that there's political intrigues or or anything like that, that she would have to be cautious in any sort of way, that people might be trying to curry favor with her or manipulate. Things that I would assume a woman of 30 would think about, but perhaps I'm wrong. That would not be the first time. I think I think all the women that come from 
our world are, are very, very similar. And I think if you put all of them in a room and didn't label who said what, it would be a little difficult to tell who they were. Which they do all get in a room at the end of book three and then part of book four and five. They're frequently together. I don't know if, if all the dialogue is tagged with who said it because I had the benefit of doing the audiobook. So I had Tilly Hooper narrating. And even even with her considerable talents, it was difficult sometimes to know who was talking because they all sound so similar. Yeah. And there's even a point in one of the books where one of the um, maidservants comments on how all these women have these domineering brutish men. And they're all like, yeah wistful <laughs> so wistful of course they're so awesome they tell me what i'm supposed to do it's great is that a is that a sense of wish fulfillment too like not having to make decisions i wonder if that's where uh, the author's going with that you know Possibly. like i don't have to think i can just exist and do fun stuff and he'll take care of everything all i have to do is not make him mad <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah i mean that that's the problem is is the guys get mad because they can't process or realize or, or whatever that they have other feelings so it all just comes through as mad and what will make them mad yes. oh if she's in danger but they don't stop to think that they're a greater danger to yes. her than anything else yeah, why are they mad? She did something dangerous, so I'm mad at her. Yeah. Like, I could understand being mad at the situation or the circumstances or things like that. But taking it out on your supposed loved one is just crazy. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, specifically when it's Cora and Tor, like, they escape the Vicarance and they make it to the, what is it, the chapel? And they, they get there and it's like, oh my gosh, we almost died. And he hurts her. And I'm just thinking yeah. like, I, I could I could completely understand and even relate to, oh my gosh, we just died. And then him like punching a wall or something like that's fine. You know, it's like, you yeah. gotta let that out. It's fine. But throwing her into a pew twice, I don't understand. <laughs> shaking her so her head yeah spins. so she sees stars I, I don't i don't normally read books like this so it's a little it's a little difficult to find my footing with the series yeah. because it's it's not that i haven't you know read books with violence in it but where it's it's between the hero and the heroine but you're supposed to root for them and i'm just like i i I can't. Right. I'm sorry. I'm rooting for her to get away, but she can't seem to manage that because he always finds her. <laughs> in a lot of ways, too, the hero is thrust into almost a parental role. Yeah. Well, because she's so childlike. Imagine you're a parent and your child has been missing or is in some other dangerous situation and you find them. It's often portrayed as like this impulse, like, what did you do? Why did you go there? Why did you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, but I don't think that's good parenting, you know, no. like it, you should channel that into I'm so glad you're safe. Yeah, Apollo <laughs> does that in the fourth book. In fact, I, I think I even mentioned like I was expecting him to lay into her or some, you know, in either a verbal or even maybe mildly physical manner because there were witnesses. I didn't think he would necessarily drop her, like backhand her as Lon did Cersei. 
but I was I was waiting mm-hmm. for it because I'm that's what these guys seem to to do and are allowed to do and there's no there's no one to ever really help the heroine out of the situation and she doesn't seem motivated enough for whatever reason to help herself. Well, there's no repercussions for that behavior and as you find out in book 5 when we're in the head of Franca who is a woman from Fantasyland, it's basically expected like she views that type of behavior as love like that's that's a man being loving or caring about a woman (laughs) you're right it's strange to to try to equate those things you know that's their love language is is bruising someone without their consent like it's yeah and i think we're i mean we're slowly moving away from this as a society too slowly honestly but i mean i remember being told as a little girl oh he pulled your hair that must mean he likes you yeah oh he pushed you down oh he's got a crush on you oh he's paying attention to you he must like you even if the attention can be perceived as bullying or or unwelcome let's say it's nice but unwelcome oh well you should feel flattered yes or being catcalled as you walk down the street or whatever. Oh, that's flattering. That means you look good. No, it's it's not. It's a power issue. Yeah, the there's definitely a clear line in these books, like where the power is as far as like dominance and submission. I mean, it's never expressly mm-hmm. stated, but it's it's very clear throughout the whole series. Despite the fact that it being clear, I was super shocked the extent to which making the female character unempowered happened in book five. Yeah, well, for Franca, it's it's like she starts out as her own woman. To an extent, yeah. Due to necessity. I mean, she's she's under her, her father's con- or her parents' control, but she has the most agency and autonomy of a character thus far. Yeah, and the second that is taken away, the threat of her... F- of her parents is taken away then her brother steps up and is like okay well now i'm going to be in charge of you even her relationship with knock while i feel it's probably the healthiest relationship (laughs) portrayed in the series between the main couples i think he also he's thrust into that parental daddy sort of role where he's taking care of her he's teaching her he's showing her things he's making sure she's okay he's interested in her emotional rehabilitation yeah he he is i mean he's certainly the more kind and gentle of the heroes in the series and the thing is though is that franca expressed dissatisfaction because she lost her her first love antoine horribly Mm -hmm. As she's comparing her feelings for Antoine to her feelings for Nock, she thinks about the differences, like what they each brought to her, like the benefit she got from being in a relationship with them. And Antoine was essentially a kept man. He was a prostitute who she employed and then they fell in love and she was like, well, you should just be with me and I'll take care of you. And he agreed. But as a result, the power dynamic in that relationship was with Franca having all the power. She had all the money. She had the say so. If she didn't want to be with Antoine anymore, she could just said, okay, bye. And he would have had to leave because he was on her payroll. And she didn't like that. She wanted a man who would make decisions, have an opinion. And so when she meets Nock, he is that man. He's more decisive. He's more dominant. She's not in that power position. And while maybe she feels like it's a little more equalized, I feel like the balance just shifts. Like now she's thrust into that submissive role as opposed to an egalitarian relationship. 
No, I agree. And while if you want to be in a relationship where you're in a submissive role or a dominant role and the and your partner is in the opposite role and you both agree, that's totally fine. Like, that's yeah. okay. But you need to be consensual about it. It's not something that you just fall into and it's okay. It needs to be something that you both like and both want. And I didn't get that sense really from Franca. I kind of got that sense that she was wanting more of an equal partnership and didn't get one. And sort of settles for this. This being what she had yeah. with Knock. Yeah, I at the start of book five where she's she gets her money and she's as free as she can be. I was I was wondering what sort of adventures she would have and how she would discover and grow as a character. Of course, that night, right before she's supposed to leave, that's when she has to get whipped to within an inch of her life. And then it's all just down downhill from there, taking things away from her, which she doesn't appreciate that that's what it is because she's so love starved in general because of how yeah. she grew up that she doesn't see anything very clearly. And I think it's so funny when they're just like, when I think it was the queen and maybe her brother and knock are just like, you're not in the right headspace to make a decision. I was like, of course she isn't. She's never has been since she was five. Yeah, her normal meter is broken. <laughs> exactly. And instead of encouraging her, you're just basically replacing that role with a, no, you're going to do this. And she's so used to being in that role. She's just like, well, this is clearly them loving me. It's like, no, no, <laughs> no, no. That's not what this is. <laughs> or at least that's not what it seems like to me. And it sounds like you too. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the through storyline over the course of the series. So in book one, you get the sense that it's an encapsulated story. And while there's hints of like books two and three with Cersei and Cora, I think at the end of book one, the story's over. Yeah. But at the end of book two, you get the sense that it's starting to ramp up. It ramps up with this whole idea of King Baldur. He becomes deposed at the end of book one as the king of Middlelands and Middlelands gets remerged with with the Northlands. But Baldur ends up teaming up with evil witches. I don't even know what they want to do. Like, I guess their sense is to take control of of the powers they could get from these these women. Like, it ends up they want their babies? I don't know. It's weird. It's been really unclear up until that point, basically until the end of book four, when things are more revealed. Yeah, and you get, like, the villain monologuing. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no hints of this through the entire series, but I guess there's been elements in the background, very in the background, because you can't really see them, of trying to get these various couples together so that they can produce children that will be special and magical and wonderful in unique ways. And so that these bad witches, Balder, ew, Otherworld Apollo, also ew, can then take these children and complete some sort of nefarious plot that we don't really ever get too much of an inkling about because they're dispatched in what seems like a paragraph. I don't even know why they're there. <laughs> they serve so little purpose. Yeah, it's very weird. It's almost it's almost like Twilight, um, where the books ramp up to like the vampire battle and then it turns out it was all in their heads or yeah. something. Uh, Twilight <laughs> handled it a lot better than this series does, though. <laughs> but that's kind of what it feels like to me. It's like we're ramping up to this this showdown and then it fizzles out and then and then we have book five <laughs> that is completely unrelated to anything it's it's 
Honestly, it's, it felt quite a bit like the Indiana Jones series, those movies where you have like the first three that are kind of connected. You can see how they all play on one another. There's similar tones and, and all of that. And then, however many years later, we have the fourth one that just feels like the weird cousin. Like, it's related, but it's, yeah, no. it's not close family. It's not like the siblings. So it, it's sort of like, I don't... There are only three, there are only three Indiana Jones movies, Em. I'm sorry. Ooh, I've touched on a nerve. Poke, poke, poke. <laughs> um, as much as I enjoyed certain elements in book five and, you know, Knock and Frank are certainly the healthiest, I think, relationship in this series thus far. Book five just doesn't need to be there. I don't understand why it's sort of tacked on. Maybe the whole reason to have the book is so... We can have the epilogue where Cersei and Lon release the slaves. Is that why we have book five? <laughs> book five is the denouement of the series. It's just... Book four Book four is the climax, and book five is the denouement and resolution. Did it have to be so uninteresting, though? I really feel conflicted about book five because I really, really like Franca a lot. And I like Nock a lot. And I think their chemistry is really good. And I liked the whole flip-flop with the fish out of water, you know, Nock being new to fantasy land and then them traveling back to our world and Franca being new to our world and getting to know it. And I really enjoyed that. It was a nice change of pace and just kind of different. Um, that's actually something that, that the author does really well. I think each book is like a different version of like that whole fish out of water story but I was really looking forward to book five and it felt like you got through half of it and it was good because it was all Franca and Nock and then the second half was oh and there's all these other stories too that I'm going to insert and not do very well <laughs> yeah it it's such a hodgepodge of a book for me. Because there's the story, there's Fantasyland version of Cersei getting together with our world version of Dax Lawn. There's the very brief Valentine love story, I guess. There's the thing you mentioned with the, the slaves getting freed, which one... I'm so... <laughs> that is... That's probably the most impactful thing that happened in the whole series, is that slavery and Korwat got outlawed. Yep, and it's tacked on in an epilogue at the last book. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about the basic storyline formula for these books, Em? I know you have some thoughts <laughs> on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like there's this formula from books one to four, and then five is just, eh, we'll throw it out. It's true, because, <laughs> what is it, in the first first third of the book, all impediments keeping the lovers apart are removed. So it's sort of like, all right, you do realize that kind of ends the story, but whatever. The first four books sort of follow this format of, like, girl meets boy, she doesn't understand what's going on, she gets wedlocked to him, and she's freaking the fuck out. And he's so scary, which... But hot. Yeah, scary, but hot. So she's scared of him, but turned on. I am I guess that's what I'm supposed to get from that. And then <laughs> we have to make sure that she is completely removed from any sort of power that she can have or any sort of agency. So the story strips her of all of that and then puts her in the position to where as she's trying to fumble through this world, he is both angry at her and finds her funny, which is very 
bipolar. Yes. It's like, can you figure out which one it is? Yes. Because it kind of feels like, is he laughing at her, which seems mean, but you don't know because he has to keep everything to himself. She's his toy. <laughs> He's a cat with a toy. He's like yeah. dance puppet So I guess dance. then the, the mistreatment has to escalate until he abuses her in some fashion that's sufficient enough for him to, or for her to actually react and use just about the only power weapon, whatever you want to call it, at her disposal, which is to make him feel guilt because she can't reason with him because logic does not live here. She's not a person until he feels guilty. And then they get forcibly separated. So I guess guilt is supposed to be the representative of love and then they're ripped apart in some fashion, which I guess we're supposed to feel bad about. It it allows the the heroine to think about what she said or did and start to feel bad and then want to rug sweep everything when they get back together. Yeah, it's fine. We're reunited. So, yay. And then, you know, he's like, you love me. You know you do. You're happy. You know you are. Of course, because you've decided that I am, so I must be. And happily ever after ensues. Cue end credits. Excuse me while I go leave. (laughs) <laughs> and babies oh yes and they we have to have babies which you find out has a purpose but you don't know that that's the purpose that's true there is there is sort of a purpose there sort of is i mean the bad guys are the most inept freaking bad guys ever you know at the end of book one i think there's some sort of <laughs> war which is barely mentioned because finney and yeah. valentine and some witch i can't remember her name is good witch lavinia yeah like help you know, do like wound dressings and things like that. So it's it's barely mentioned that there's any kind of conflict. But then, of course, it's fine. Everything goes back to the baseline of of cool. Because dragons. Because dragons. <laughs> this series is just... There's elements in it that could come together to be really interesting, but they're not handled in a way that makes them interesting. It's more like they're treated as inconveniences. Yeah. It's very much a side plot to the main story, which is the couple being together. And it's not even the couple being together. It's more like she has to go do things so he can get grumpy. Like that's the relationship. Finny, Finny actually, which had I realized this was one of the more epic heroine moments in the series, you know, prevents Balder from coming on the ship by, you know, faking sick and the crew helps her and they, they protect Frey's investment. But as soon as he shows up, up, you know, once they get back on the ship, he rips her a new one in front of everyone. So it's not like she's it, proactive and then gets punished for it. Yeah. It's not one of these like, oh, honey, I'm so happy that you're okay. You were so clever to have thwarted Baldur's attempt to get on my ship, which would have been bad because there's things on the ship he should not see. It turns into you risked your life. You're bad. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> Excuse me? You know, and yeah. Finny doesn't try to get away because she thinks she's in love with him at that point. But even initially at the very first part of her story, her whole reason for going to this world is to see her parents. And she doesn't take the opportunity to do that when she's left alone for multiple weeks because he decides to take off because he's he thinks she's someone else that he is so not interested in and ditches her. She is capable of writing and she is adventurous 
but she doesn't take the horse and her sense of adventure and go back to her parents or the copy of her parents. You know, she she just stays there. Yeah, and the only reason that she does see her parents is when Frey gives her the opportunity. Yeah, all of these stories are just like what he can provide her. <laughs> so there's there's so little character development as a as a result. So the character you get at the beginning of the story is pretty much the characters that you get at the end of the story. But they're in love. And really, she has more independence at the end as well. They're they're literally the same. I'm trying to think of a noticeable difference. I guess Franca does cuz she has more more independence at the start of her story. <laughs> So she she goes through a change. That's true. And then Maddie, what happens with her? She, I mean, she's terrified and she's less terrified at the end of her story. So I guess that's also good. But with the other three, it's, they're the same. I think they're probably more submissive and broken in. That's a consistent theme in the story is girl gets transported to other world and must conform. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their, their hearts have been conformed into the box that he wants to put them in. And maybe maybe that's the, the thing with at the end of book five with Cersei and Lon, basically. Lon getting the credit. But it's like, oh, Cersei played a hand in it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> she probably suggested it through sex. Like she's all, while they're fucking, she's like, so Lon, <laughs> it'd be nice if the slaves were free. <laughs> But we don't see any of that because that's all off screen. We see we see them being freed, but that's the only part that happens in the text itself. Why isn't that in the book? Well, there's so many interesting <laughs> things that happen off camera. There's like, oh, this battle happened over here. Or, oh, this character went over here to get her magic. And there were trials and tribulations. It's like, oh, that sounded interesting. Nope. Oh, there's there's pirates. Yeah, we could we could go adventuring on the high seas. Nope. Even in Franca's stories, Nock goes adventuring. He does. But Franca, yeah, he go he takes his money and goes adventuring. What does she do? She goes and visits with family. <laughs> Which I'm not saying that that's bad, but it's when you compare the level of adventure, it's not quite equal. <laughs> You know, and, and granted, Franca does have, have work to do because everybody's been thinking she's so terrible. And I'm not saying that her improving her relationship with her relations is bad. It's just why does he get to go adventure when she doesn't? And she has magic. Yeah. She has money and magic and she's capable of presumably taking care of herself. Yeah. So with Cersei and Lon, it's the and the freeing of the slaves. Like that's the, the point where you actually see our world making any kind of a noticeable impact on theirs. I agree. I think that it is clear that the reason the slaves got freed was due to Cersei's influence, but we don't know how or why. <laughs> no, we're not privy to that. We, we weren't in the room or tent where it happened. <laughs> we, were, we were crocheting in the corner with the other ladies. <laughs> yes. But if we're crocheting, it's because we choose to crochet because yes. we like it. <laughs> Not because we've been told to crochet while the men it's go talk exactly. more. So I think I think another consistent theme in the story is this violently dominant hero. All of the books 
including Franca's book, where you have the the modern man from our world, the the hero is is dominant and has like this propensity for violence. Yeah, I don't know if that's because this is supposed to be a more historical world, and therefore this is the perception of history or how history was supposed to have happened or how people were back then or something. I don't know because even even with Nock, who's from our world, when he finds out the extent of Franca's abuse and how it's been perpetrated since the age of five, he goes and beats the shit out of her father and, until he, quote, lets Frey's men pull him off. Yeah, it took three of them, I think. Yeah. I mean, he's capable of it just as the just as the Fantasyland heroes are. Yeah, because he breaks her father's fingers too. Yeah. Three of them. There's that number again. When they went to go visit him in the prison and she puts her hand on the bar and her father is like crushing her finger against the bar. So he's he's just as violent. He just has like this civilized veneer. He is capable of restraint to a point. Which brings me to my other consistent theme throughout the story, which is theme of control. So we have a lot of things dealing with control. Like who who is in control? The hero is always in control of the heroine. Mm -hmm. But is he always in control of himself? I don't know. I don't think (laughs) that the hero spends even a quarter of the effort on controlling himself as he does on controlling the heroine. And I think the most stark example of this is with Lon, where from childhood he's been trained to be this impressive warrior, but he smacks Cersei across the face so hard that she falls down because he's mad. I mean, that's the most stark, blatant example. Do you think it was supposed to be mad or it's because he's afraid? Probably afraid. He only has that tool in his tool belt to express it. I think that's accurate. I think you're right. I think that that that's how he expressed his emotion was with anger, but that wasn't the emotion he was expressing. However, he's not the only character that loses control of himself. No, he's not. They all do, I think. They do. Particularly, again, as we've said, like when she's in danger, they just, they lose all ability to not inflict harm. something i don't know something to that extent they become almost animalistic reacting on on impulse or instinct yeah i wonder why these characters are like that is it because they're at the top of the heap you know they're they are the quote-unquote apex predators or apex alphas to where no one else i guess except for the queen as far as government and whatnot are concerned are actually above them but even the queen was installed by Frey. yes because Frey let her yeah the only reason she in charge is because Frey doesn't want to be. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't want to be bothered to be in charge. It would ruin his his rating that he gets to do <laughs> that he finds fun <laughs> i think that's a good point though that you bring up about them being the apex predator or whatever because let's talk about tor and how when he goes to his city of velbrin no one in the city likes cora because they think she's other cora the evil one or whatever the other one is the evil twin but they yeah they don't like her because of that but once they realize oh she's good to she's good to tor she gives it up and she you know she takes care of him and she's kind and all these things then they thaw out toward her and they're kind to her and it just makes you think or it makes me think that they're all super hyper aware of how Tor is being treated definitely 
And they're they're very much a don't mention this. Let's not upset him. Let's just because yeah, you're right. When she first goes there, you know, and she's upset by not getting treated kindly by those around her because she just finally breaks. Yeah, because <laughs> it's just been a lot for her to to try to process and and carry and take in. And he sees that she's crying, and he's just you know what is that? What's happened? Why are you upset? And she sort of says why you know nobody's nice to me. Then every Everybody's nice to her, but it's clearly fake. Yeah. Because you don't know what he did to get that reaction from them. And she knows it's fake, but they, they all put on this performance so that, that Tor can be kept happy in his little glass house. And she's one of the kids and she tattled on the others to daddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally. But because she's his favored child, they all have to bow to her. <laughs> Let's be nice to Cora or else we get mistreated. And I mean, there's no yeah. evidence that his people get mistreated or whatever. I mean, I'm totally reading into it to that extent. But you do get that feeling like they're all hypersensitive to his. It, it makes you wonder. Yeah, they're <laughs> sensitive to his emotions. And you get that from Cersei's book, too how Deandra is constantly telling Cersei no if you don't do these things this way then the people will start to grumble and it will look bad for Lon like they're all super in tune with like the the feelings and (laughs) well I think she even makes the comment like he'll start mistreating the men like his his army of men he'll start mistreating them if she basically doesn't give it up yeah oh god i don't think she's how about she's that the only character the the through element of advice that these women get oh. <laughs> yeah give it up on the regular to keep your man happy <laughs> yep starting with aurora make sure that he doesn't cheat and make sure that he treats people kindly so the only way you can ensure that is by spreading your legs. Yep. Which is nice. Fuck him good and he'll <laughs> be happy. <laughs> Basically. Which in certain ways is reminiscent of those fairy tales from yore. <laughs> it's, you know, Beauty and the Beast and whatnot. Yeah, it's a little infuriating that that's what the heroine has to bring to the table. Because everything else gets stripped from her. Well, and <laughs> everything else he can get for himself. Yeah. I mean, he could sleep with other women in fact they do yeah you know prior to them meeting the heroine of course or he could rape her but to have her willing ah that's the one thing that she has in her court yeah (laughs) it's so weird (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's talk about our favorite parts of the series (laughs) yay (laughs) (laughs) sorry What part or parts stand out to you is your favorite? It's so weird to say this because I feel like in any other series that I've ever read, these wouldn't be momentous things. <laughs> but because of the the relationship setup and the interactions of the hero and the heroine, they really do feel like momentous. So my, my favorite moments are going to seem almost anticlimactic. Okay, I'm braced. <laughs> I think you already know. Maybe you saw in the notes already. Like where Maddie is first given a choice. You know, does she want to go with Apollo or does she want to stay with the kids that will remind her of the kids that she wasn't able to carry? <laughs> what a choice. It's like, and at this point, I think it's it's important to mention that Apollo, not all that nice to her. <laughs> so it's not like, 
<laughs> let's go have a fun romp through the countryside versus, okay, you get to deal with my sparklingly crappy personality <laughs> and possibly wonder if I'm going to abuse you because I've kind of left that teetering and not really cleared that up for you <laughs> and not appreciated, you know, that you're worried about that because it's all about me <laughs> or essentially emotional torture <laughs> because of her miscarriages. <laughs> and I'm laughing not because it's funny. <laughs> But because I'm so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, it's its moments like that where I'm thinking of, of other stories that I've read with other characters. And I'm like, I cannot believe that that is one of my favorite moments. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm having a mental break. Or the moment where Finny goes and deals with Balder and she does a good job. I was like, this is good. You know, she's she's taking care of herself. But then the story punishers are for it. Yeah. I think one of my other favorite moments is, <laughs> sounds so bad, where Apollo, after realizing Maddie actually isn't in danger, after being in danger, like she's safe, embraces her versus giving her a verbal verbal lashing or something like that. It's those kinds of moments where I'm like, I cannot believe that these are my favorite. <laughs> I can't think of any with Franca right now, but there were some with her where, again, it was a so it was the same sort of thing. Like, oh, there's kindness between the couple. That's nice. What about you? What were some of your favorite moments? I really liked the side character of Mita. I thought she was really awesome. And I liked... She was. I liked a lot of, of the scenes with her where she's just kind of snarky and... <laughs> You know, side eyes the dynamic that, you know, the heroine has with the hero. Like, okay, I guess if you're into that. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be, but to each their own, you know? Yes. So Mita's proactive because she goes, she rescues Maddie when she, when she has a premonition that Maddie's going to be in danger. So she's a really cool character. I wish there was more of her, but I liked the bits that, that we had. Uh, another favorite element um, in the series I had was being in Franca's head because throughout the series, she's portrayed as like this, this stereotypical bitchy slut. Yeah. She is. You know, and I don't like using those slurs, but it really feels like that's what she's supposed to be, you know? It is. I mean, that's the role that she's supposed to, to fulfill. Yeah, and then you get to to book five and you get to be in her head and she's just amazing. I love listening to her think. She has the best snarky little thoughts and stuff. I just really enjoyed like any moment where she had some, some snark was much appreciated and much needed. I would say those are probably my faves. The the moments when a female character was allowed to be kind of snarky or spunky or And there were those moments. So Cersei, you know, fends off an attack in her tent. Yeah. And Maddie stands up for herself when she's quartered with with Mita when they're in that field and they're they're fighting off an attack from some creatures of some kind. Oh, and there's the scene with Finny where she's talking to her cousin Broderick and she's like oh do you love him <laughs> and then she yeah. kills broderick's lover and she's all it pained me to do that cousin <laughs> yeah she's cold-hearted <laughs> it was a little bit like "Ooh, she's gone she's gone to the dark side it's a little creepy i kind of like it though i i really enjoyed like the snarkiness and i wish that it was celebrated a little bit more in the series me too what about some least favorite moments for you there are just so many it's really let's just stick to some highlights though um <laughs> 
I feel a little bit like I got desensitized through the course of the series with so many least favorite moments that it's it's so hard to it's really hard to pick one. But I think the the standout, honestly, is when Franca has any sense of her freedom removed. And again, she's a 30 some year old woman. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. Where I think I think that was the moment where I was in disbelief that the book would go that far. <laughs> I sat there and was just, you've got to be kidding me. The book goes so far as to have her whipped to within an inch of her life. When she starts to recover, then her brother takes this assertive role, this brother that she's been protecting for the better part of their lives. You know, he yep. asserts himself and is like, no, no, I'm in control of you. If it's not me, then I'll get the queen to control you. You know, which is kind of instigated by knock. Yeah. I was just, why, why is her having having a choice and options and motivation so bad. I don't know if that was Ashley's intent, but when you take all of these things away from the character, you remove her motivation. So then the story turns into a lot of talking about her feelings, making observances and things like that, because she can't actually go do anything. You know, where is it? Oh, was it Vonnegut that said about writing, like every character should want something, even if it's a glass of water? None of these female characters seem to want the glass of water. Like they will sit there and be thirsty until they're given permission to have the water. (laughs) and they'll just that's what this experience has been reading these books and again this would be different if she consented (laughs) to that consent is important it's not even really expressly said that that's what it is which is very subversive and unsettling (laughs) you know there's there's so much dark romance themes in this whole series that it's never really properly addressed what do you think what about your least favorite moments and and whatnot so my two least favorite bits or moments i don't even know if you'd call them moments maybe themes (laughs) (laughs) my two least favorite themes in this story is one the treatment of slavery yeah through throughout and not just slavery, but servitude, because all of the characters have servants, if not slaves. Yeah, Franca has the best relationship with her, what, ladies maid? Is that what her title is? I forget. I think so. But I mean, all of them have servants, if not slaves. They're all kind of in denial about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, these are my friends. Mm. You know, yeah, they're, they have to be here, but they're my friends. <laughs> Yeah. And and it's it's almost like okay, well, these are the other women in the story, but the the way the book treats people in that position, women in that position particularly, female slaves, female servants, it's very much like, oh, well, it's fine. That's just how it is. They're just they're fine. They're lucky cuz they're with this person and not some other person. Like their their master is is nice. <laughs> So it's okay. (laughs) It's like Lon and Cersei in Door Talk. Yeah. It's like, oh, Cersei's lucky because she has Lon and not Door Talk. Yeah. Her servitude is so much better. I mean, marriage. I mean, love. (laughs) Her master is (laughs) kind-ish. Um, the other uh, least favorite theme is the author's treatment of homosexuality in the series. Yeah, we haven't really talked about that yet. Yeah. And we don't really get a very good glimpse of what the author might be thinking herself as far as homosexuality goes. But in the books, there's this idea, okay, in fantasy land, being gay is okay, unless you need to have an heir. Well, actually... 
unless you're a woman who needs to have an heir. Yeah. Or you're a man in Corwalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, yay, homosexuality is, is fine. It's it's okay to be gay. But Woo-hoo. is it? Because the only the only gay characters we get in these stories get severely mistreated. Well, other Finny does actually have a happy conclusion to her story in that she gets married in our world. That's true. She has a happy she has a happy ending. But her life, like she's looking down the barrel of this life where she has to get married to a man when she's not attracted to men, so she can fulfill her obligation of having an heir. And not only that, but she's getting married with the expectation that she will not have sex with anyone else because once you're married and if you're a woman and you're in fantasy land and you get married then you're expected to be faithful yeah and she's keeping her sexuality a secret so she's basically looking down the barrel of this life where she's living a lie for the rest of her life and honestly out of the gay characters in the series that's the best option Yeah. That any of those characters get. Because secondly, we have Finney's cousin Broderick and his lover. Yeah, I think Phobin. They're out and they're together and it's fine. I don't know why it's okay for Broderick, who needs to produce an heir, to have a gay relationship. But okay. But at the same time, you get like this impression like, oh, they're evil. (laughs) Like, (laughs) okay, so these gay characters are evil. (laughs) and Phobin is controlling Broderick with his gay mind powers he's using his masculine wiles like it's it's so it's a very weird dynamic I think yeah between those two and then I think the third character we get is the eunuch yes who he ends up getting mutilated due to his sexuality mutilated and cast out which Lon actually brings him back and gives him a position within the culture yes But he's still a part. Oh, yeah, totally. So his life is, he gets to be the advisor to the Dax. Lucky him. Yes, and find the brides for the bride hunt. So I think the treatment of homosexuality in these books is it's like, I don't know what the author is trying to tell us. Yeah, it's it's strange because throughout the series, they keep saying how sexually open-minded the culture is. And it just doesn't seem that way. They have different hang-ups. And I mean, some of their hang-ups aren't so different from ones that are here. I don't know how different the, these cultures are supposed to be in some ways. Ours and theirs. I don't know, but you're right though because they're supposed to be more evolved sexually you know in fantasy land where they're open about it but at the same time they still have hang-ups yeah i mean i understand i mean that is the point of of royalty because in a lot of governments that have kings and queens and whatnot that that's sort of their reason for being because they're not ruling they have advisors and and counselors and things like that to actually rule to handle the paperwork and the administration of ruling so the succession of power is all about the royal lineage to keep those decision makers in the room where things are happening yeah in the same bloodline yeah however why why couldn't coffin the other finney have married a woman and then had sex with a man to get pregnant. Yeah, it would seem like that would be if they're so open about sexuality and and things like that. That seems like a logical situation. Then she's fulfilling her, her archaic obligation to produce an heir of her blood. 
Mm-hmm. But aside from that, she's allowed to be her authentic self. That would be one way that it could have happened. Of course, it would have negated the story because then yeah. you wouldn't have had to have other Finny go over there. But yeah. Yeah, because that's the whole reason she wants to switch places with Finny. Yeah. So she can have a chance to be authentic. Yeah, where she can live more comfortably and as herself. It's a bit depressing. Yeah, this whole series is depressing, which I don't think I realized how depressed I was getting while I was reading it. It was like, oh, another book. You know, it really was. Like, it's just, it took its toll. It's like, all right, yay, let's read another story about a woman who gets essentially bound and gagged in various sorts of ways and mistreated with, you know, with whatever the author has to fling at her. Because <laughs> it's not even the hero all the time. It's, it's the world or the writer. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good segue to discuss, like, emotional impact. Like, how did this series impact us? How did these stories impact us? And for me... <sighs> I'm of two minds about it because there's a part of me that really likes this sort of thing, like really dark, gritty stuff where obviously I don't want that in my real life, but it's interesting to read about and think about. But there's this other part of me where it just feels like ultimately unfair. Yeah. Like there's this lack of fairness yeah, I agree. The other big impact for me is is as I was reading them, as we were discussing them, I felt relieved after we finished book five. Like, oh, good, we're done now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's not that I didn't enjoy reading the books because I really did. I enjoyed reading the books. <laughs> I mean, I'm... I'm very hypercritical of a lot of things in these books, but honestly, as a reader, I was engaged. But talking about it and delving into it a little bit more deeply and thinking about it a little bit more deeply, I think it just, there's this element of emotional labor that I had to perform, you know? Yeah. And so when we get to the end of it, I'm like, oh, good, good. I don't have to think about these heavy, heavy topics for a while because a big part of the reason I I like romance stories so much is because the emotional labor is often very minimal for me. It, it's escapism. And and in these books, they're very fraught. I wouldn't classify it as fun to escape to a world which treats its character, its main characters, because those are the ones that you're supposed to get the most invested in, either because you can relate to them or because they're interesting. You know, one of those reasons, at least. Yeah. And then treat them so horribly, you know, less so with, with the heroes. So you can have all different kinds of places that you want to escape to and all different types of stories that can take you on whatever sort of escapist journey you want. But I think the problem with this series in particular is it's not as upfront with the kind of journey that it provides. Because of course, there there are plenty of dark romances that go to very dark places with issues that that could be thought of as abuse or not, depending on the the characters, the story, and how those topics are handled. But where you have these stories that are structured in such a way that everything's okay. I think we we talked about it a little bit. These books are like sting songs, where it's like <laughs> it's so it's so nice and happy and light, but you're not listening to the the fact that with the lyrics they're so sad and tortured and and just depressing yeah 
you know, it puts a happy face, you know, forgive the reference, but Cersei's marked face on, yeah, on the, oh, no, it's fine. Because look, she has pretty clothes. And oh, it's fine. He, he's done abusing her as far as we know, because her stories have stopped. Yeah, he won't do it again. She'll never be in danger again. The danger has been dealt with. So as long as she's not in danger, he won't get upset. In fact, I think, I think in book five, they even reference that where is it? I think it's Finny. Like, oh, she has to go, go visit Frey. Finny has to go, go back to the castle because Frey said, or go on the ship with him or something like that. And, you know, Finny's like, oh, I better not make him angry. Or, you know, we just, we know how he is. (laughs) That that reminds me of something I wanted to bring up about how we get to kind of continue the relationships from prior books and the successive books and how it's just like, Everything that that heroine went through is like really minimized, especially in the case of Cersei and Lon. Yeah. But in all of them, like Frey is actually likable in the other books, I feel. Lon is, seems like a big gruff teddy bear. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's, you don't feel like you get the real sense of who these characters are from the people around them. It's, it's another one of those, like what happens in their sham stays in their sham. Yeah, there's the face that the the heroine sees, and then there's the face that they show everyone else. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get to the ratings? Do we want to talk about Ashley's strengths and weaknesses as a storyteller, or do you feel like we've talked about that? Yeah, we could talk about it. Actually, I think that's one of her weaknesses as a storyteller is this lack of staying true to the characters she created, Mm. you know? Like, Mm -hmm. she has a hero in in the book where he's one of the central characters and he's one way and then in the successive books it's like he's diluted do you think that he's not being portrayed correctly or is it just because the other characters whose head you're in you know maddie's franca just don't see that side i mean maybe maybe this is what ashley's trying to tell us but i feel like like it's it's tacitly saying all his behavior in the prior book was okay it's another form of rug sweeping to me okay you don't think it's more of a not so much rug sweeping as a as a what's happening behind closed doors it's hard to know because it's i mean if if she's intentionally doing that i guess but it's hard to know if it's intentional and i kind of struggle to think it is intentional on the part of the author it probably is intentional because romances are supposed to be happy i don't think the author is intentionally showing like showing us these two views like this is hero behind closed doors this is hero out in public i don't think she's and and maybe i'm wrong and maybe i'm not giving her the the credit um but it really doesn't seem that way to me i don't think she's trying to do that either i think it's just (laughs) i think it's more she doesn't want to discuss it therefore we're not going to that's the impression i get where it's like okay well everything's fine now yeah it's it's like we're not supposed to take anything too seriously but the topics are very serious so it is difficult to just be like blasé about it you know these books sort of read even though they're written relatively recently they feel a lot like those classic romances you know like those harlequin bodice ripper kind of things where it's like the hero would get away with this horrible treatment of the heroine but it was just considered so socially acceptable that it's never really called into question i think you're right i think the author brings in like a lot of intense 
subjects in these stories but then treats them casually it's difficult i think that's one of the reasons for me emotionally reading back to back (laughs) these stories has been so difficult because it's literally when you pick up another book it's like you're putting on armor emotional armor (laughs) to get through it a little bit it's fine to have really intense subject matter in a romance i think when handled correctly it can enrich the story that's not what's happening here i know that happens in to a certain extent in in other kinds of stories where you have these other characters that are given these really terrible backstories but then they're just sort of washed over it's like well then why give them such intense backstories if they're not relevant why put these heroines through this kind of mistreatment if it's not relevant because they're never going to do anything with it it's never going to define them in any kind of way or develop them in any kind of way it's just supposed to be there for one minute to entertain us and then we move on which is really evident in book five (laughs) where there's all these little little moments of conflict that just sort of randomly pop up until the story finishes and that was franca's book so it was really a letdown (laughs) yeah (laughs) I was looking forward to Franca too. But I mean, Ashley, I think she does like scenes between characters very well where, you know, these emotionally intense moments, like when they're arguing or something like that. I think she handles those really well. I agree. I think that when she wants to make an emotional impact, she does an excellent job. Like that scene with Cora giving Tor the cake. Yes. Like that's still in my head. You know, because it was a really poignant, horrible scene. Oh, I should have listed that as one of my favorites. Ah, I didn't think of it. Darn it. Yeah. And the author did such a good job with it. Like just amazing. Just good writing. So it's not that she's not a good writer because she is. I'm fully invested in in much of what she's she's writing i just wish that she would give that same care to all the intense topics or not bring them up if it's not important why is it there like the lace on the underwear oh that's another thing i can totally fully envision the outfits that the heroines wore Mm -hmm. but i shouldn't have to envision every single one I would say like giving us a sense of the clothing is fine and even welcome um, to give us like some kind of idea of like how they dress and, you know, customs and the weather and, you know, social things like social stature and things like that. You know, I think there's reasons to bring up clothing or even the fact that, oh, wow, if you want to go on the wish fulfillment side, these clothes are so much more comfortable than they look. That's totally reasonable for the story. But to to be treated to that for every single garment is a bit much. Yeah. And that and plus the furniture. But yeah, it's just it goes a little overboard on those. It's not that it's poorly written. It's just that there's so much of it and not all of it is important. Yeah, like the various character names that she throws out like oh there's all these people in the ship and then they're just names it's like i don't need to know all their names i can't even remember all of their names like there's too many like the was it lorenz and laurent yeah you know it's it's like if if it's not relevant then why are why is it on the page and and then there's the whole element too like being descriptive is great if you're describing something that you can't take for granted that the reader will know you know but if you're talking about a tree you don't need to describe every single leaf on the tree because unless there's something different about that tree I mean the average reader can just picture a tree you could say oh there was a giant tree and you don't have to go into great detail because you could kind of assume that the reader knows what a tree is yeah knows what giant is 
you know? <laughs> yes. Now, if it was a special tree that had, you know, rainbow leaves or something and had some... My brain went to rainbow tree, too. <laughs> it had some import in the story, then it would make sense to describe it in greater detail. But if it doesn't have any reason to be there, then that description doesn't need to be there. Yeah, I sort of wish she had dialed down some of those sorts of descriptions and put that effort into enhancing her villains. No kidding. Villains who? Yeah. It really is. <laughs> I understand that in a lot of romance formats, like the enemies to lovers and things like that, there has to be animosity of some sort between the hero and the heroine. You know, especially if you're dealing with contemporary stories where they're, I mean, unless it's like a crime themed book or something like that, there isn't like a, a villain or a bad guy or a supernatural story. Yeah, there's, you have to have some reason for the characters to break up. Right. Something keeping them apart. Right. Here, it was just, I mean, we pointed it out when when it happened through the course of the series, but it was like, oh, there was it Minerva was on the coastline wreaking havoc. I'm like, why can't the story happen there? there there's things happening there. Can't, can't it go there? There's ways to, to filter these sorts of conflicts through the character relationship that wouldn't completely separate the villains from the main part of the story. For example, it would have been it would have been so easy, like with Franca's character in particular, since she has magic. I mean, I know like, was it at the end of book four when they're like, all women have magic, whatever sort of feel good thing they're supposed to say. My little pony, friendship is magic. I'm like, oh, great, great. All the women characters have magic. What good did it do them? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that's another thing, though, that when the author wants to have you be present for the villains being villainous, she's really good at it. Yeah. Like, there's this scene where Franca is being whipped by her father to ribbons, essentially, and Nock rescues her. Yeah, it's another really powerful scene. It was extremely powerful, and you get the sense of, like, the care Nock has for her, and also just his, his need to protect since he's a cop or whatever. But you also, like, the father is just evil, and he's got some weird your distorted view of you know what punishment is and you've got the emotional headspace that Franca is in where she's just like I'll take it so my brother doesn't have yes, to. Yes I must endure. And then you put that alongside that scene at the end of book four where they're fighting the witches mm -hmm. and it's like oh they're gone now. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering at the end of book four if they missed someone. You know what I mean? And and every hero had their baddie to slay. Like Apollo killed bad Apollo. Like everybody had their bad guy to slay in some way or all the all the heroes I should say and then it, it was a nothing where yeah. it's like if this was written a little differently especially since there was clearly motivation for getting all these characters romantically together so that they could produce the magical babies you could do something sub so subversive through the whole series and just ratchet it up it's sort of like each each heroine had someone in her her friendship group that they they all wore a particular charm you know since she's so like shopping savvy or their clothes all <laughs> all had a particular fabric or pattern you know but you couldn't overdo it on all the clothes descriptions or it would just get lost <laughs> but 
Yeah. You could have that through and sort of weave something like that through so it, it builds up to something. Franca would have been really easy. You know, she has magic. She's disenfranchised from the group. Her parents could have been in league with the bad witches. And so now she's torn. Does she go with her parents and the bad witches and find revenge or avenge Antoine's death against Frey and Co? You know, since they clearly didn't care that he died. You know, that would have been a really enriching story. And then on the other hand, she'd have Nock, who's trying to fight for her midnight soul and, and all of that and going, no, no, you don't understand. They don't actually care about you. They're just using you. Like there'd be such an easy way to do that, but it, it's not done in this series. So instead we get, <sighs> this is going to sound really snarky, but instead we get a story where, no, no, I want to go to the world where, oh yes, pizza is so delicious. And ooh, look, a toilet flushes. <laughs> Those are the things our world has to offer, Em. Pizza and toilets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, toilets are important. Dude, of course they are. <laughs> and so is pizza, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pizza is good. <laughs> that is the extent of the sort of enriching storytelling experience that's offered. I know I'm downplaying it quite a bit, but it's really hard to find anything in any of these stories that really is relevant to the series as a whole, that ties them together, you know, other than the abuse that we sweep under the rug. Yeah, it's a little frustrating because as an as a writer, I feel like Ashley is very, very talented. Yeah, she is. I feel like she's an excellent writer. I just wish that there was more in certain places and less in others. Yes. <laughs> I think that kind of, kind of clinches it for me, you know? Like, that's the summation of of what I'm trying to say, because I'm not trying to bash her writing ability at all, or even the books. I, I enjoyed the books, but I want more of some things and less of other things. I, I hear you. <laughs> On the series overall, I think you probably enjoyed them more than I did. I think I would have enjoyed them more if I didn't have to critically think about them. That's probably true. <laughs> If I could have not necessarily done them back to back. It's a little bit more of a reprieve between them. Possibly. Yeah. It's not like the relationships of these characters go anywhere. They don't develop or anything. Speaking of relationships, I think it's time that we rank the couples. Yes. Let's rank them. <laughs> rank and file. For me, I ranked them in two separate ways. Um, so the first ranking is how good they were together, like how healthy was their relationship. Okay. And, and for that, for the worst, least healthy relationship, I put Cersei and Lon, and then Cora and Tor, and then Maddie and Apollo, and then Finny and Frey, and then as an honorable mention, I put other Cersei and Dax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we barely get them. And then Franca and Nock. Ah, yeah, Franca and Nock. <laughs> yeah, we barely get other other Cersei and other Lawn. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's telling that the most healthy relationship has the man from our world. Yeah. Who wasn't raised in toxic masculinity land. Yeah, I think that is telling. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second way I rated them was kind of like favorite or like the couples I liked the best or I felt had the best chemistry together. And for me, the least favorite was Maddie and Apollo ah. and then Cora and Tor and then Finny and Frey. And then I kind of struggled, but next I put Cersei and Lon and then I put other Cersei and Dax <laughs> <laughs> and then I put Franca and Nock. 
as my favorite. What about you? Okay, so how I rank them is I had like obstacles and issues resolved under that heading. I just kind of did best and worst because so so many of them just kind of mull together that it's really difficult. They do. They bleed together. They do. And so under obstacles and issues resolved, like essentially how do they problem solve together? I don't know. I'm kind of rethinking this now. But anyway, I put the worst is Finny and Frey because they don't deal with it in any kind of way. <laughs> That's true. Like they rug sweep it entirely. They do. Even when Frey was like, we need to talk about this, babe. And she's like, nope. <laughs> and it's just let's not let's just not address this at all. Great. <laughs> so because because they don't. <laughs> They're the worst. They don't even try. There's no attempt. And then, I don't know. I sort of put, I'm sort of rethinking this now, but the best at resolving issues or whatever was Maddie and Apollo because I know that's bad. I know there are reasons to think that that's bad. Believe me, I hear it. I know. Because <laughs> I, I think part of the problem is, honestly, it probably would have been Franca and Nock. But I don't really feel like they were really put through their paces very much, you know, because a huge chunk of the their story is like, oh, everything's wonderful and happy. And we literally have to drudge up issues for them to have <laughs> in all of these random directions because nothing else there. Because otherwise they're too happy for too long and there's no story, which that's fair. Where, you know, Apollo is telling Maddie, like, I'm not that guy, which he isn't. He never actually physically hurts her, although he does spank her, but she's into that. He does emotionally hurt her. He does. Like I said, I appreciate and And I think if Franca was more aware, <laughs> she would realize that not kind of did that too. He did. He froze exactly. her out. Gave her the cold yeah, shoulder. Yeah, the cold shoulder. And then if she was appreciating his role in and his instrumental behavior in making sure that she wasn't able to leave on her own because <laughs> he didn't stop her he got the queen to do it you know I just I don't know I just felt like they were better I don't know anyway so then it's couple chemistry and it's kind okay. of a tie I mean I put as like the second worst <laughs> So not the worst, but really a close second as Cersei and Lon. And the one the one that I put as the worst is Finny and Frey. Because again, they don't she just acqui like like there's poor Finny. There's no I know, I feel terrible. You're so mean to Finny. I really am. Oops. You have a thing against her. I really do. I have a thing against a lot of them. But it's it's also because at least like Lon and Cersei, yes, when he mistreats her, they at least sort of talked about it and they sort of are listening yeah. to each other. But it's sort of like Finny and Frey both want to live in bubble world. And I just didn't feel any kind of chemistry from them. I don't know. Maybe because they never really have any of like the same sort of heated moments that the other characters have. I think the reason I put Cersei and Lon so high up for chemistry is because... It's almost like instantaneous for them, which is unrealistic, sure. But I mean, this is a fantasy True. story. But I got into the idea of like the big strong king being subsumed with desire for, you know, the the pretty golden one or whatever. <laughs> I was into it. So <laughs> even though he is an abusive jerk, <laughs> I liked <What>? it. <laughs> if you like it, you like it. Yeah, you like what you like, right? Exactly. <laughs> Granted, I like it fictionally. <laughs> qualifier <laughs> i would i wouldn't want that for anyone in real life by any means <laughs> and how i ranked the couples themselves as far as 
best and worst and which was my favorite or whatnot. Like, yes, it was partly the healthiness of their relationship. That was part of it. But it was also which one entertained me the most because it's a book. Yeah. So starting at the bottom, worst to best, I guess, would be Cersei and Lon. Finny and Frey, <laughs> Cora and Tor, Maddie and Apollo, and then Franca and Nock. Okay. Yeah, because entertainment is a factor. Oh, definitely. I think for me, I don't mind the darkness so much. I just want there to be, I want there to be more of a reason. Yeah, I feel like there has to be sufficient reasoning. And I feel like, frankly, the characters have to be developed a little bit more. This is going to sound like I'm picking on the writing and, and maybe I am, but the characters felt like characters. They didn't feel like people. I wasn't all that emotionally invested in them because I didn't see much of a point. <laughs> you know, it was just here we go on the same romp again. <laughs> Rinse, repeat. So what about the heroes? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> the hero that I would probably put as the worst. Gosh, can I put all of them there with the exception of Nock? <laughs> no. You have to pick oh, one. I don't want to. So Nock would clearly be the... That is the rule. I would put as the best. He is the, the least abusive. <laughs> Go <Put> him! Oh. <laughs> The most emotionally evolved. Yes. Gosh, and I guess if I'm really scraping the barrel to find decent heroes, I would also put Dax of our world just to give give Nox some company so he's not by himself. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and the worst? I mean, golly. Probably Lon. Although Tor's pretty close to, uh, I don't know. It's hard to choose, really. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really difficult, you know, because these are these are not characters that I think, particularly the heroines, are really safe with. You know, I mean, they're big and strong and and everything, but you don't get the sense that they're really safe with them. Yeah, I don't know. Lon's probably the worst, I guess. <laughs> I think Tor's real close on his heels and then Frey and Apollo are kind of side-eyeing each other in the same place. <laughs> How do you feel about the the ranking of heroes? So I, I definitely agree with you about Nock. I think he's <laughs> the best as far as if, if I had to be with one of them, which one would I want? Yes. Which one would your person feel safest with? <laughs> And I liked his character. I, I thought his character was interesting. Um, as far as like the worst, as in the ones I would definitely not want to be with, it would be Lon and then Tor. So I agree with you on those. However, I also really like Lon. Like he's one of my favorite I know. characters. I know he is. <laughs> so while I wouldn't want to be with someone like Lon... <laughs> I want to read more about Lon. Yes, I could understand that. Because when I ranked the books, I took that kind of stuff into consideration. No, I get it. And then my least favorite hero is Apollo. Really? I just think he's just so pathetic. <laughs> yeah, he's so pathetic. <laughs> he's just like, oh, my wife died and I'm going to be sad about it for years. And then I'm going to kidnap her twin from a parallel world but then emotionally abuse her <laughs> and oh yeah i don't know i mean if if i had to choose between like in real life being with someone like apollo and being with someone like lon or tor i would choose apollo but i don't want to read about apollo apollo is just whiny and pathetic and i don't like him <laughs> 
<laughs> which is sad because I liked him in the first book. I love I loved that exchange he had with Finny and how, you know, he seemed like a potentially really interesting good character and then it just went And he <laughs> is one of the male characters that actually has some amount of emotional range. He does. I didn't like it though. I don't like his emotions. <laughs> So what about the heroines for you? If I had to rank the heroines, which I do, I would... Which, you do. Yes. You have to. I, I feel like I'm in a similar dilemma as with the heroes. I would most likely place Franca on top. And then again, so she has company, other Cersei, because I like a lot of the things that she said, like, no, no, I am in charge of my own life. I feel like Franca and Cersei should have gone on a cruise together. They, they can go sail the seas <laughs> with their magic and have fun. I would read that book. Franca and Cersei should have gotten together. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I would love a book with Franca and other Cersei. I think I ship them. <gasps> Yay. I would have read that book. I would have enjoyed that book. Probably a lot more than any of the other books in the series. Anyway, moving on. I think after them, it would be Maddie. I really, apart from Franca and Cersei, she's probably the one that I was the closest to rooting for and having a kinship with or anything like that. And then the other ones, they're just, they're so similar that I'm just, eh. Like, I feel like they're interchangeable a little bit. I don't know if there's a worst one. Maybe Cora. I would put her as the worst. Why? <laughs> <laughs> is it because i told you you had to pick one no it's not i mean because i think any <laughs> asserted herself and took care of herself cersei i feel like was doing the best that she could and cora uh, i don't know it's so tricky well i know you have strong feelings about cora versus other cora like why is other cora so maligned i really yeah i don't get that because the only reason i can think of is that oh she couldn't please either nocturno like yes that's the barometer of what makes a female character good she didn't give it up good enough yeah, i don't know it, it almost feels like labeling any of them as the worst is almost like picking on them further and yeah. so it just feels like haven't these women endured enough <laughs> They don't need M telling them they're the worst, basically. <laughs> and and I, it's weird to say that because I, I, again, I genuinely loved that moment with the cake and all. And it was so heartbreaking. Yeah, that was probably one of the best moments really in the series. Is. As far as writing goes. Cersei's the worst. Maybe Lon and Cersei are the worst in their own categories. Yeah, maybe Cersei. Because, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it. Because I apparently didn't fill it out on my notes. Whoopsie. I'm bad. Yeah, (laughs) Cersei's the worst. I was trying not to do it, like, as a couple thing. But (laughs) Nock and and Frank are the best. So, sorry, Cersei and Lon. And, yeah, there's lots of things about Cersei I don't like now that I'm actually really thinking about it. What about you and the heroines? So I'm kind of in line with you. Um, my favorite was <laughs> Franca, and mostly because of her snarky inner voice. I just loved yes. it. And then my second favorite was Maddie mm-hmm. because she was the most realistic of the four that came from our yeah, world, I, agree. I think. She was the most relatable of those four. And then I put Cersei as worst. Because she's boring. Yeah. She's a boring character. I mean, there's plenty of things about her that I liked and plenty of things I about her that I didn't like. But at the end of the day, what did she do? She got one to free the <laughs> slaves. Because <laughs> of her magical golden pussy. Just add that to her long list of names. <laughs> Which tiger? But, That's yeah, me lying. I don't know. She just... 
eh, she just wasn't interesting, you know? Like, she's magic, but we don't get to know anything about it. And she's much more interesting as the series progresses, but in her book. Yeah. It's like, I didn't care. Like, okay, good for you. (laughs) Yeah, in her book, she's really a dud. Yeah, and then in the middle, I put... Finny and Cora. I feel like Cora is marginally better than Finny. And again, I think for Cora, it's because I feel like I got to know her better than I got to know Finny. Yeah, makes sense. We have a sense of who she is, not only when she's transported, but then we also get a glimpse of her in her own world. So for the villains. (laughs) Villains? How do we feel about the villains? (laughs) There should be more of them, not just in volume, but like in quality. The most effective villain as far as when I say best villain, I, I think effective know. is fair. Let's go with effective. Uh, effective is at being villainous, which a lot of them really weren't. I would probably put Dortak at the top of that. You know, he was a consistent quote unquote threat <laughs> through Cersei's story. He at least showed up. <laughs> Yeah, boy, did he. You know, he, he was present, right. you know, as opposed to like Minerva's <laughs> out there somewhere being bad. Yeah, he was on the page. Yeah, and then Apollo, the other Apollo is like, he's in there in the beginning and then right there at the end, but he doesn't do anything. In the, I mean, the way he's treated her is, but, you know, yeah. as a villain, he's kind of impotent as far as the what happens on the page, so to speak. So, yeah, I would say he's probably the quote unquote best villain that she created in the series and the worst i mean it's hard to pick because they're just and by worst we mean least effective right yeah i would i would say least effective at being villainous minerva maybe or whatever witch is supposed to be bad in the fourth book helga although she does things (laughs) i mean a couple of times it's I mean, the heroes are far more of a consistent threat to the heroines through the series, the majority of them, than any of these other villains are. What would? What about you? How would you rate them? Well, I agree with you about Dortak. He's the most consistently there as far as villains go. And, and influencing the plot in things in certain ways, you know, not just randomly having yeah. things come out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, and to his credit, um, he... <laughs> freaked me out he was definitely villainous you actually wanted like you were yes kill him make that i also feel like uh king baldur was a more effective villain because he's consistently there throughout the series moving plot along but what did he really do well he started the war which we didn't get to see he revealed cersei's true identity that's true inadvertently he teamed up with the witches and then didn't do anything. Yeah. We know off screen he severely abused uh, other Cersei. For like 20 years. He did a lot of things that like pushed the plot forward. Okay. And then thirdly, I put Franca's parents. And it may be because I read the fifth book most recently, but they still kind of stick in my mind as being particularly bad. Yeah, they were very bad. Not not that the other villains didn't do terrible, horrible things like Paul. Yeah, I think that's the tricky thing because there's definitely villains that impacted our heroines' lives, like Paul and Franca's parents, where we get a sense of them in the beginning. And then, of course, the psychological impact that they had on the heroines fuels a lot of what happens in the rest of the story 
story. And the thing, the thing, the reason, uh, the other reason I put Frank as parents is because they, they symbolize like this turning point for her, like her overcoming them, even though she overcomes them relatively early on in the book, her getting free of them is like what her story is about. To a certain extent. Yeah. Um, For the less effective villains, or as I put in my notes, crappy villains, I put Minerva slash other witches, because if I can't remember your name, you're probably not very (laughs) memorable. And they weren't super present. Their plan wasn't very... Well executed. It wasn't even (laughs) there. Like we had to have like the the trope of the villain monologuing at the end to, to know what their plan even was. And, you know, most of the things they did were perpetrated off screen. Like they sent, you know, creatures out to get you or they magicked you around or whatever. And supposedly they tortured Antoine to death, but we didn't, you know. Um, I also put other Mm -hmm. Cora because she was just kind of like no one liked her. Yep. (laughs) And she wasn't terribly smart either. She's just kind of selfish. And I also put other Apollo because while he greatly impacts Maddie, you know, most of his page time, he's just there to be menacing. He's not, I I struggled with him because in some ways he's, he is an effective villain because he greatly impacted Maddie's life and her, her emotional well-being and all these things. And he, he quote, starts the story for her. But on the other hand, he was just almost cartoonish at the end where he's got like the metal hand and just obsessed with Maddie. Yeah. And he kills other Cora like on a whim. Crushes other Cora's head because she annoyed him or whatever. He's like cartoonishly evil. And I just. Yeah. eh, No, I get it. Wasn't into it. What about our favorite characters overall? Who, who is your favorite? Such a short list. If we're not talking about like heroes and heroines, but the other characters, I put Mita and Ruben. I put Titru and uh, Valentine, although she could be considered maybe a little villainy, maybe a little heroy or heroiny, however you want to say that. But she was sort of repeatedly snarky and I liked that. But yeah, my list of favorite characters, and they're all like characters that are on the page for like two seconds. Because most any other <laughs> character, it's like the longer you spent time with them, the more I was like, I don't like you. Move on. That's probably more my issues as a reader than it is necessarily the story. What about you? Who were your favorite characters? So I agree with you about Mita and Tichu and Valentine. And I also put other Cersei. Oh, yeah. Oh, I do love And her. then for our mains, for our mains, I put Franca, Lon, and Nock. And so basically everyone on my list is a character I would want to read more about. Oh, gotcha. Valentine, they tease us with more about her, but we don't really get any, any payoff. Yeah, I would really like to know more about Valentine. She would be probably at the top of my list. Yeah, so those are all characters I'd want to read more about. Yeah, I would put Franca and Nock, maybe. Um, I mean, they'd be on the list. Whether or not I'd want to read more about them, I don't know. But definitely other Cersei and other Lon. That was so shortchanged. <laughs> so how would you rank the books within the series? Okay, so... I'm going to rank them based on how much I enjoyed the story. And so it's going to make me sound bad because I think my least favorite was Broken Dove. Okay. And I think it's because of Apollo because Uh I just couldn't stand him. The second least favorite was Wildest Dreams 
third would be fantastical and fourth would be midnight soul because it would have been my favorite except it kind of tanked on the end yeah and then my favorite was golden dynasty because of all the books, because I read them all twice, and of all the books, that was the one I enjoyed reading the second time. Yeah, no, it makes sense. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, so if we're going from worst to best, I would put Wildest Dreams at the bottom. <laughs> Poor Finny. It's also my enjoyment, the likelihood that I would be to read again and re-experience any sort of enjoyment that I had. But yeah, it's it's basically which one entertained me the most. So this is purely, it's, a, it's even less about enjoyment and more about entertainment, frankly. So Wildest Dreams at the bottom, then Fantastical, then Golden Dynasty, and then Midnight Soul and Broken Dove at the top. <laughs> I know, believe me, I was surprised too. Uh, how? <laughs> Again, it's just like, I don't know. It's it's more what one I found at least mildly entertaining. I was so bored with Wildest Dreams. <laughs> Fantastical as well. I mean, and that's unfortunate because it has that, that really great emotional scene with the cake. That is, I think, one of the yeah. best things that she wrote in that entire series. And I feel terrible saying that. Plus, it has knock in it. You know, Golden Dynasty was more entertaining. Midnight Soul probably would have been first, but it was just so hodgepodge and irritating with the whole, the extent that it had to go to strip Franca of her freedom. It's sort of like, it's not so much that Broken Dove is at the top. It's just the other ones were lower. I guess that's the best way that I can put it. It's it's sort of, it's first place because I had bigger issues with those other ones than I did with Broken Dove. And yeah, Apollo's a little bit boring. It's not so much that I liked Apollo. It's just, I think it's that I liked Maddie so much. Yeah. Maddie was really good. And since I'm in her headspace for the majority of the story, I wouldn't mind going and, you know, spending more time in her headspace. I I think that's what it is. That's fair. You know, it was, I would prefer Maddie's headspace to Cersei's or Cora's or Finney's. And, and Franca, I would put at the, but I have to take the overall story into consideration. And Franca's story was just. <sighs> yeah, I waffled between um, putting Midnight Soul first versus Golden Dynasty, which I did put first. And mainly Midnight Soul got the bump down because the back half of the book was just not there for me. I completely understand. I think I made this point before, which is it's right before Franca and Knox separate where you know there's literally nothing standing in their way from being together. It's just a matter of time. And so there's no there's no conflict. Yeah. There's no tension. There's nothing to make the story interesting until much later on in the book. And even then there's like a couple little moments here and there. And then that's it. So if you were going to rate the series as a whole from one to five. <laughs> Are you smiling? <laughs> what would you rate the series? I am smiling. Oh. I'm excited. I want to know what you're going to say. I feel like I was being generous. <laughs> How bad is it? It's not that bad. Or at least I don't think it's that bad. I was really trying to be generous <laughs> and I gave it a 2.5. <laughs> I think that's fair. I was trying to be nice. This is my trying to be nice rating. There's no way I will ever reread any of these books. <laughs> yeah. And as far as entertainment, I mean, uh, pretty low on the I'm being entertained scale. So they're just not your thing. They're, they're really not. 
<laughs> and that's fair. Yeah. Not everything's going to be your thing. Yeah, they don't have to be. So what about you? What did you rate it? So I kind of waffle between like a 3.5 and a 4 because I gave two of the books a 4 and three of the books a 3. Mm-hmm. But I kind of bumped it up to 4, I think mainly because it's one of those series where it had a lot to think about okay yeah it did you know there's a lot there I'm gonna be thinking about these characters you know in the future and I'll probably relate you know future books in my head to you know things that happened in these books too so I think they're impactful in that way so what what would you think about the how the series ended as a whole like as far as the completion and how that factored into the rating like do you feel like the series actually felt like an end at the end i feel like the series ended at book four yeah me too and book five could have been the start of like a second series but instead we're given like these mini stories in the book that didn't get really the author didn't do justice to them yeah like the story of other cersei and dax or more about Valentine. And so... Because I think you even said, like, the only reason you know it's the end is because it says the end at the end of the book. Yeah. It feels like that book ended so many times. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing, though, is I feel like if the series had ended at book four, I wouldn't have been as happy with it as it ending at book five. And I think part of it is that I just didn't like book four. No, fair enough. <laughs> Like, I feel like it was the weakest book. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it was. I don't know. I sort of feel like book five was the weakest book. And I think maybe I give book five a boost because I like Franca so well. Yeah. I know. I hate saying that because I enjoyed Franca and Nock as much as I could without there being enough in the story. I feel bad saying that. But yeah, I feel like it, they should have just stopped at four and then just left things feeling a little unresolved. Because I don't think, I think so. anything really gets satisfyingly resolved in book five. And nothing new happens. You know, like they could have just tacked on any of the interesting thing that any of the interesting things that happened to Cersei in her book had the freeing of the slaves had Cersei go get her magic back or, or what they could have had all of that in her book. Yeah. And then and then she'd be more interesting. There would have been no need for book five. And that would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel terrible saying it, but it's true. It was an unnecessary book. Sadly. Which it, it would have felt more necessary if the villains were functional. We need effective villains. There should be. If you're going to have a villain in a story that's, you know, a true bad guy to be defeated, so to speak, then honestly, these villains were so inept, it felt more like the heroes were just picking on them. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> Especially since all these heroes are so godlike. <laughs> they are. It's just the villains are just this island of barely functional misfits trying to stand up to the patriarchy or something, which is funny given that Balder and Apollo are among them and they can't, they can't get their shit together, you know, because there's yeah. what the, I think if memory serves, I think there's Apollo, Balder, other Korra, Minerva, Helga, I think. And then I think there's another witch. And so that's kind of who I thought would be the bad guy in the fifth book. Like, because so little is mentioned of her. But <laughs> now that's just apparently just another name on a list that's thrown into the story that isn't supposed to mean anything. Yeah, I don't even know. So, Erica, do you feel romanced? 
<laughs> I went to the trouble of Googling um, dark romance definition because I wanted to have like a, a little bit more of a defined idea. Okay. No, that's good. There's not very many good results, um, but I did like the description or definition on Urban Dictionary, which great resource, I know. <laughs> but I feel like it really describes dark romance, what it is to me, and what I think someone can expect from it. And so Urban Dictionary defines dark romance as a subgenre of romance that contains controversial themes throughout the plot or characters with questionable morals and background. This can also be described as the, quote, villain love interest, end quote, trope manifesting into a genre. And so if you take that definition of dark romance and you kind of keep it in mind, I do feel like overall I was romanced because I really enjoyed reading the series. I wanted to know more and it's telling that my favorite character of the heroes is Lon. Yeah. The one I want to read more about because I put Nock up there because he's the one I would most probably want to be with in real life. But if I had to choose Lon or Nock to read about, I want to read more about Lon. I would too, probably. And he's the darkest one. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I think I was, I think I was romanced in a way. What about you? Did you feel romanced? I would say, especially given that definition, I would definitely say that I was darkly romanced. However, I feel like if if we were going to read a book about dark romance, then I would need more character development. That's probably why ultimately my feelings of being romanced are sort of like teetering because like okay yes darkly romanced but also bored I needed to know more about their motivations and and anything it just it felt really superficial in a lot of ways I agree with you on that and so very surface level for a dark romance to be effective for me as a reader, the couple chemistry has to be better developed than it was in the series. There has to be some talk of, of trust and establishing what the boundaries are between the couple. Because there doesn't seem to be a really, I mean, there's sort of boundaries. I mean, each female character says, no, don't do this. And it doesn't matter. It makes you think, or at least me as the reader, that he just doesn't give a shit. Do you think, and this is kind of a silly question because, I mean, as readers, we're consenting to reading the book by continuing to read it. Yes. But do you think we had informed consent on how dark this was going to go when we started the series? Not based on sort of what I read as as far as like the, the book flap, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I typically don't read comments from other readers <laughs> before I decide to pick up a book because I don't a I don't want to be spoiled and b I want to make my own decisions what about you do you feel like the book was advertised correctly essentially I I would have felt differently going in if it had been characterized as more of a dark romance than as a fantasy type romance yeah I I think that would have impacted how I felt about it while reading it initially because when you when you pick up a book you have some idea of the type of content you're going to find in it yes based on you know the picture and the book flap and that kind of thing and there was really not a lot that made me think it was going to go that dark 
especially in Cersei's book. Yeah, there really isn't. It's sort of surprising, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, and so for me, when I started reading the first book, I found myself like kind of mentally trying to make excuses for Frey. Like, okay, well, he's not always going to be an asshole. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'd known it was a more of a dark romance where he's like supposed to just where he is an asshole you know and that's why you're reading it because you want to read about that I wouldn't have wasted my time worrying about it I would have just been like oh okay yeah let's just get into it you know yeah was there anything about the series that made you feel romantic off because I have a few (laughs) I think we kind of have covered mine I've been pretty vocal (laughs) with my lurch groans and my vomit sounds and things like that when the mood stroke stroke Stroked? Striked? (laughs) Struck. When the mood struck. There you go. Whatever word it's supposed to be. (laughs) We can grammar. We can. Very well. Verb conjugation who? (laughs) We grammar good. (laughs) Gosh, that hurts. (laughs) That actually hurt me. Why did you hurt me? (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you mistake my love for hurt? (laughs) so i think since we've kind of exhausted mine let's talk about your romantic off list (laughs) okay so we kind of touched on two of them which was the author's treatment of slavery and homosexuality so i won't delve into that again but they're on the list noted Thirdly, there's this weird sexualization of babies that takes place that just really grossed me out. Like to the point that I think I commented on it to you like before we talked about it. Yeah, no, you did. And yeah. <laughs> like, did that seem off to you too? You know, like that kind of thing. And and it's one of those things that I think really hit a button for me because I noticed like we kind of do that in real life too. Like, oh, he's going to be a lady killer or oh, you're going to have to beat the boys off with a stick on that one, you know, like that kind of thing, when it's a little tiny baby. Yeah. But there's there's this scene where the women are sitting around, and so we have uh, Cersei's babies, Tunin and Isis, and Finny's baby, Victor. Tunin is being held by Maddie. Uh-huh. And he's, like, pulling at her dress and stuff like that. And Lon comes and takes him away and speaks to him in Korwakian, and Cersei interprets for everybody that he said something like, you don't rip off the women's clothes until you know how to use your dick or something like that. And I was just like, ew. Yeah, that's so gross. Why would you say that to your infant son? That's just ugh. Yeah, it's... And then... Weird, perverse, creepy. Like, yeah. To, and then to just, like, put it over the top, there's, like, this weird thing where, like, Victor and... Victor's, like, chasing Isis around and, like, trying to pick her up and stuff because Victor's slightly older. Everyone's just like, oh, it's so cute. Like, they're flirting or something like that. And it's just like, oh, they're just babies. (laughs) They're just playing. Exactly. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They're They're playing. And having fun. And it just really pushed the ick factor for me on it. And then probably the fourth one on my list, and I don't know if this is... I think this is bigger than the baby thing. Okay. Um, is the subject of Valentine. Who or what is she? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why is she there? I mean, I, I, I gotta get the impression. I kind of get the impression she's like a Cupid. Because she always says, like, she has her catchphrase, like, love is everything. 
Oh, yeah, I guess I never noticed that. Yeah, she always says that, you know. Oh. And, <laughs> I was paying and attention. Stuff, but, but there's like these little hints like, is she fully human? We don't know. She's the most powerful witch that we've been introduced to. Why? I mean, we learned she comes from a long line of witches, but other than that, we don't know. Why does she care so much about other people's love lives? We don't know. What is she trying to perpetrate with her, you know, matchmaking? Is it just like some weird, you know, voyeuristic pleasure she gets or something else? We don't know. And we never know. And it's so frustrating. I mean, I guess it could be argued that Valentine's purpose was getting the couples together to make them special magic babies then why isn't she a villain i thought she was gonna be frankly but that never materialized i don't know maybe because the she needs the babies for a good purpose maybe there will be more books in the series way later on i mean ashley does write another series called the rising and these characters are in that book a little bit so and they play a role so maybe there's another fantasy-ish series that she'll put out where there will be more of maybe those kids will play a role in it there will be a series called magical babies yeah sure why not <laughs> and valentine's and victor victor and isis will get together of course probably Ugh. yeah and then and then valentine's plan can be or purpose plan whatever you want to call it can be more explained possibly i don't know i mean she's definitely one of the more interesting characters in the series but you don't really get to know much about her because she doesn't want to divulge much about herself no she's very secret very very private which is one of those things it's like you're so secretive why are you so secretive <laughs> yeah but it apparently doesn't matter or it won't matter yet or something i don't know it's one of the many just random unaddressed things in these books it feels like you know when you need to sneeze and you get like that feeling <laughs> and you get all prepared uh -huh. for it and then you don't sneeze and you can't sneeze yes and then you're like pissed off that you didn't sneeze yeah totally that's how i feel about valentine <laughs> like i'm kind of pissed off that we didn't get to sneeze yeah me too totally <laughs> there's unresolved issues possibly i mean we don't know what the issues are with valentine we know she wanted to go see the elves for a really really important reason that we don't get to know what it is i think maybe ashley was intending there to be another book in the series and it just didn't happen or something or she wants time to do something else with that stuff i don't know maybe i don't know i'm just kind of happy i never have to read these books again what else are you reading I am currently reading, so I haven't finished it yet, but Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline. And I'm doing the audiobook. Ooh. So Will Wheaton is narrating this book as well. So I I'm tentative to describe because I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't read Ready Player One. But suffice it to say that at the end of Ready Player One, someone someone is victorious in the hunt for Halliday's fortune. And the heir is now placed in a predicament where the stakes have been escalated and there is danger afoot. It's an ominous tone in this first section of the book. It has yet to be explained as to why, but there's another hunt for something out in the oasis and the stakes have been raised to where lots of people will die if this quest has not been completed. All right. I'm really interested to see how this plays out. What about you? What are you reading? 
I just finished Well Played by Jen DeLuca. And this is the second book in a series of contemporary romances about people finding love while performing at a Renaissance fair. And in this book, Stacy has been feeling left (laughs) behind as her friends get married and have babies. She messages her Ren Fair fling and asks him if he misses her now that the fair is over. He messages back and soon Stacy starts developing deeper feelings. However, it turns out that the man replying to her messages is not her fling, but someone else. Which sounds ominous, but it's actually really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Dun dun dun. I mean, no. (laughs) It is a cute book. I haven't quite finished it yet. We'll have to discuss. I really liked it. I rated it four stars. Alrighty. So this episode marks the end of our journey to fantasy land. Um, I hope you enjoyed your voyage (laughs) into the untamed wilds of dark romance. And we promise the next couple books we cover will be a little bit lighter. And that's it. Check out our website, romancemepodcast.com for show notes, other episodes, and our upcoming reads. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Join us next time when we discuss Kiss Quotient by Helen Wang. Bye. Bye.